As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome, everybody, to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and even though the U.S. women's team came away with a bronze at the Olympics, we're going for gold on today's podcast. We're going to give you audio gold, hopefully. Here to help me do so is a woman who's excited to see 41-year-old Carly Lloyd starting for the U.S. at the next World Cup. It's Jordan Angeli. Jordan, if this is her last major tournament, there are worse ways to go out, I would say, for Carly Lloyd. Right, exactly. But I also... Don't you said that, and it kind of felt like it really is going to happen. If anybody could do it, it's Carly Lloyd, forty-one year old, yeah. scoring a hat trick in the final in Australia in a couple of years. There we go, <laughs> running wind sprints as the U.S. was eliminated by Canada. It felt like maybe that was just a fitness thing, but maybe that was the dedication to making it to the next Olympics. And in her comments about if it's time for her to retire, she made some about how like she would be okay with it, but I think simultaneously was like, "Yeah, my husband wants me to." That's not the like the ringing. I'm definitely. <laughs> going to retire uh, endorsement that maybe we expected. So we'll talk more about that and what happens next. But first, we should introduce our third co-host. Joining us is a gentleman who knows defending a one-goal lead with 10 players is the ideal thing you want at the end of the game because we want drama. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. Oh, that's exactly what we want. And if that game can have an Olympico in it as well, Mm -hmm. that would be great. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so we are going to talk about that Olympico and everything else from the USA's 4-3 win over Australia. We should note that we are recording this pretty much immediately after Canada beat Sweden on penalties in the gold medal game. If that had ended in regulation, we might have spent some time with it, but uh, it did not. And it, and it kind of backed up the schedule a little bit. So we're not going to talk so much about that. We are going to talk a lot about USA 4, Australia 3. I want to start at the beginning, a novel approach, because I thought we might see a novel approach in this game. I thought we might see some young players, players who haven't gotten as many minutes or haven't gotten any starts in this one. Instead, to some extent, I feel like we got the opposite of that. We almost got a send-off 11. Uh, what were your thoughts on the lineup as you all saw it? We'll start with Joe. I I was also hoping and thinking we were going to see some rotation here, but it all, at the same time, maybe that was... Maybe that was naive of me because this is still a metal game. And, and Jordan did a good job of bringing us back around to that on our last U.S. Women's National Team show. This is an important moment. And you could see how important it was 
after the final whistle blew and they were celebrating. And it was nice. It was a nice opportunity for these players to go out. And, and maybe for some of them, it'll be their last chance. And so we talked about maybe wanting to see Katarina Macario get a start in this game and see what she could bring. And realistically, in hindsight especially, that was just never going to happen. So seeing a pretty established 11 players we've already seen a lot of at this tournament, there were there were no real surprises in this lineup. And maybe a surprise would have been fun. Maybe seeing Christy Mewis in midfield instead of her older sister, or instead of her younger sister, excuse me. That could have been fun. Or Katarina Macario or whoever. Lynn Williams even. Not super young, but that would have been exciting. None of that stuff happened. And I think at the end of the day, it's not all that surprising. Yeah, I agree. And it would have been nice to see that. But I I think one of the things that really struck me is Julie Foudy had mentioned in the broadcast that the front line for the United States had a game and like two thirds less under their belt than the Australian front line. Which, when you're thinking about the tournament in a whole, I thought it was really good planning by Vlaco, you know, and maybe didn't he didn't expect his team and the things that happened and we've discussed over the course of this tournament, not expecting that to happen. But if you can go into a final, like imagine if that was the final and those front three are fresh and eager and ready to go. I just feel like that would have set them up in such a good way. And you got glimpses of that, especially with the the, the front three and the pressure that they were able to give. But um, maybe that was a little bit behind it. But with that being said, those other players that we mentioned were also fresh and were on the team for a reason and could have maybe added just something a little bit different to this game. Jordan, let me ask you this then, and then, and then Joe, you as well. I think I am probably guilty of being one of those people who thought the U.S. would make the final and could be expected to win uh, their fir- the first what, Olympics after winning a World Cup. And instead, we obviously did not get that. And so I think I looked at this third-place game a little bit the way we look at like when the U.S. men make the third-place game in the Gold Cup, of being like, yeah, they made it there, but like that's not what was expected of them. And maybe I'm being unfair and maybe that then informs the way I saw this game, because I think I was I was more negative than at least the commentary team were. And it sounds like you you both were. So were you, Jordan, seeing this as a a positive opportunity more so than than maybe I was? Because it is third place. It is a bronze medal. You are getting something at the Olympics and you're not just crashing out on the group stage. Yeah, I think I think it would have been different just thinking back to the last Olympics and they didn't even make it into a semifinal. They they lost in the quarterfinal. And I feel like that has such a different feeling of disappointment than this, right? Because, too, I thought that this was the best game that the U.S. played. So at least you're – I know it's a little too little too late, but at the same time, they're figuring out a way to win games after a really difficult run of not being able to win games. So I don't know. I kind of saw it with a little bit of a grain of salt and – I think we're always going to expect a lot of this out of this team because they've shown us that we should expect a lot out of them. But For, at this, go ahead, Joe. Oh no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off there, Jordan. You're fine. I was just, I was just going to say, I, I'm with you. For me, this tournament is a disappointment, right? This is a disappointment. And I think almost everyone would agree with that. Getting a medal is great, but you want to be in the game that was playing this morning as we're recording on Friday. Not, well, not this morning in, in Tokyo, but you get the idea. You want to be playing in the gold medal game, not the bronze medal game. And so that is, it's a giant bummer and it is an indictment on what this team was able to accomplish at this Olympics. But for me, I guess I'm still able to compartmentalize that disappointment and still enjoy this performance because Jordan, I'm with you. I think it, it probably was the U.S.'s best, uh-huh. it, it complete, most complete performance. And I say that knowing they gave up two goals in the second half that probably shouldn't have happened. Right. But 
it, it was still there were lots of good pieces and parts of this that made me think, man, if we'd seen this earlier in the tournament, if we'd seen this earlier in the tournament, things could have gone a lot differently. It just I feel like Taylor, what you had said, like there is this this underlying. You know, you're watching the game almost like, ugh, like it stinks that this is the bronze medal game. And I think that that's where the disappointment lies. It's just like you didn't expect this and you have this underlying feeling of like, ugh. But then if we can push that aside and look at some of the things that they did, I do think that they had some good moments that showed different looks than we had seen throughout this tournament. Let's talk about the positives then, because I heard Julie Foudy and Ola White constantly talk about how this was the best performance and where was this attacking intent? Where was this intensity, this energy against Canada? And I was almost literally scratching my head because I felt like I saw a lot of the same problems we've been talking about. So to hear you all be pretty positive and and have seen positive points, let's maybe drill down on some of those then. Let's stay positive for a little while. What, what, we can go back and forth. We can talk about as many as we want. What were some of the positives you liked? What were some of the things you saw that worked this time against Australia that maybe didn't work against them last time or haven't worked overall in this tournament? So don't, I don't want to get it twisted here, Taylor. Mm-hmm. I liked a few things in this game, but there was a lot of the same stuff. And ah, so I, I, I totally right. agree with you. It just is, is little glimmers of hope. It's also like my expectations have been lowered from game one against mm. Sweden to now. And so anything that hits above the expectations is probably still below my initial expectations. I'm just counting as a positive now versus against Sweden probably would have been a negative. So the, the expectation scale is sliding for me and it has slid down and we've hit above it in a few different moments. Something I really liked in this game that we have seen in, in a number of different games, but not in the Australia match in the group stage, was the high press. I thought the high press was not flawless, but really strong for the U.S. And I think it fits the player pool that they have right now, the, the, the roster they have at this Olympics or had. It also fits the young and up-and-coming up and generation of the player pool as well. It was aggressive. It was in uh, down Australia's throats, the front three would sometimes press up against the goalkeeper and the the three center backs for Australia, and then it would be the U.S.'s two number eights, Sam Mewis and Lindsey Horan, pressing up against Australia's double pivot in their three four three, the U.S.'s four three three, and it it caused real problems for Australia. The U.S. got good chances on it minute after minute. Carly Lloyd got a shot from it in the 39th minute and then another big chance for the U.S. just one minute later as Australia were probably dilly-dallying a bit too much in their own six-yard box. But that that press is something that I think we can latch onto from this tournament and say in 2023, we're going to see that again. We should see that again, and it's going to be effective. So that, for me, was a big positive. Um, whenever you can use dilly dally in a podcast, I <laughs> feel a like positive. it's a win, yeah. no yes. matter what. So, <laughs> yes. um, Joe, you get a point. <laughs> Thank you. And, uh, I, I would agree with that. I think there were some really good moments of press. I feel like we saw grit in moments, like getting into tackles, getting into duels where you're battling with a player. Um, I mean, the Carly Lloyd goal comes from exactly that. The duel of Lindsay Horan just out muscling the player from Australia to get the ball to Carly Lloyd. So I, I like that. There was a little bit more grit. The one thing that I, I know I talked to you, Taylor, about some of the rotations that the U.S. do quite frequently. And one of them, I thought their midfield played a lot flatter and wider, even in attack. And so what that did is it made it difficult for when, when Australia was in their block, they're in a five, two, three a lot of the time. And so those outside, um, 
it was Lindsay Horan and Sam Mewis who were playing wider, almost not quite in the channel, but net outside of the reach of those two holding double pivots that Joe was just talking about. And um, I felt like that was really good because when Lindsay Horan would do that, that she would engage that player. And I felt like, especially on the left side, we hadn't seen Crystal Dunn make those internal runs with that rotation of Horan going outside very often. I think it was in the eighth minute. It leads to the corner kick, which Megan Rapino scores off a corner kick, which is just ridiculous. And it's Crystal Dunn dribbling with a little bit of, I, I think it was brave to get the ball there and just dribble at players. And we didn't see a lot of that. And that's something that the U.S. does really well, especially with Crystal Dunn, because she is this like army knife type of, you know, utility knife type of player. She can play outside. She can play in the middle. She can play forward. So she has those qualities to dribble in tight spaces. And finally, we were getting to see that and not, oh gosh, I'm getting too close to the final third. I need to give, get rid of the ball. She just drove with the ball and made Australia uncomfortable. And so I think that's a little thing, but those were the things that I was noticing that I thought were looked more like the U.S. team that we've known for so long. We still saw, in my opinion, the U.S. giving the ball away in ways they didn't need to. And that has been not a feature, I would say, but a a, a sort of uh, regularly occurring trend with this women's national team. Jordan, like, has there ever been a team you've played on where suddenly the whole team just seemed out of sync? We had another offside goal in this one that was their, I think, 40th uh, of this tournament. Goal being scored that was called (laughs) back for offside. I think it's actually their 10th, but it felt like a lot more than that. And still some of that disjointed passing, and I can't tell if that's them... Just not being in sync, not being on the same page, if it is them trying to do new things and that means you have to kind of figure it out and improvise, is it them being asked to do wholly different things or do we just not know? I have never been – like that seems – everything that was happening to them, you you face it in like – waves, right? And I feel like this wave for them has been a little more long lasting than it typically happens when you're on a team. So yeah, I've been on a team where that just, you're just not connected on that day. But I don't feel like that has been something where it's been a constant over a longer period of time. And I feel like that's been really interesting. And one of the things I noticed today, Taylor, is I I feel like there were moments where the US felt a lot more calm on the ball. So they weren't giving it away like they they were before, but because of that, the movement off the ball was slightly off. The player was there, and then the player on the ball was a little bit more calm. Like, say it was Julie Ertz to Lindsay Horan, and Ertz takes another touch on the ball. And because of that, then Lindsay Horan's like, oh, well, now the defenders are too close. I need to change my angle. And then Ertz plays her, and it was like that kind of mix-up. Whereas before, I feel like Ertz was just playing it too quick, and then Haran hadn't gotten there, and it was a loss that way. So I I felt like it was almost an overcorrection of what they had done before, um, but still it it was it's been bizarre. I feel like it's really bizarre that they have been giving away so many passes. Sam Mewis, I I I don't know if we've seen her ever in her career give away as many passes as she has just over the last handful of games. Yeah, and I think and I think maybe that's why it stands out is because of how good she has been. And maybe mm-hmm. there's fatigue, maybe it's the, the COVID situation factors in. But I mean, she has a giveaway in the first minute. She has several more uh, in that game. And then a lot of the, the goals, both for the United States and against the United States, come from individual mistakes, including the early equalizer. It's the crossfield ball from Davidson that just gets cut out and away Australia go, and it's a good goal for them. And I think that just that lack of precision, that lack of sharpness... It, has become a thing that sort of we can identify in this team, which isn't one 
that I really thought would be the case heading into this tournament. And I, and I think it all goes back to something Joe said about needing to adjust the expectation scale and it needs to slide. And I think mine probably didn't. Even in the bronze medal game, I think there was still a feeling of like, but they should be playing for the gold. So let's evaluate this as though a team is playing for the gold medal. And they weren't. And that's probably unfair. And it's better to look at this as like, okay, what are they trying to do? Are they trying to win this game or are they trying to showcase the next generation of players? They're yeah. trying to win this game. All right, well, then what are they doing to win this? But I think we can always maybe recalibrate a little and look at the opponents getting better, pressing harder, being more technical, causing more problems. You can't sort of assume the U.S. is just going to win every single game anymore. And maybe that's been the case for a while. And it's just a uh, blissful ignorance. But now I do feel like we have to kind of adjust to the next Women's World Cup. I think there's going to be a lot of strength and a lot of stronger teams. And then some of the strong teams will get even stronger. So it feels to me like maybe just, again, looking at this as not as these these are all perfect footballers who never make mistakes and win everything, but these people are mortal who can have off games, and we should try to build that into our sort of previews is, I think, my larger takeaway from this yeah. one. But I kind of also at the same time, I kind of like that we have such, you know, this team over the course of their existence really has created such an expectation around them. And I think they actually thrive off of that. And I do th think that this will be a jumping point for – the team might look completely different in that next World Cup, right? That next major difference, our major tournament. But even if it's different, I think that one of the things that Carly Lloyd was talking about is the mentality has always been the same. And that's been the weird thing that the mentality ha was just off in this tournament. And so I think they're going to get back to that. And I kind of like, we're pretty lucky that we do get to have a team like this where we're like, it isn't good enough, right? And and they know it's not good enough. And they're, they feel like it's not good enough because I think that it's going to only propel them to continue to say, okay, everybody, we knew everybody was catching up, but now we like really know that everybody's catching up and we have to up our game even more. So I kind of, you know, the expectations are hard in general in life, but it's kind of nice to have those expectations because now we're like, all right, well, what are you going to do in the next tournament? It's kind of fun to to look forward to that. Uh, well, we can look forward to more conversation about this game and answering some listener questions. We will do that in just a moment. But first, a word from today's sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back. Uh, I think I said I was going to try to keep it positive in the first segment, and then I think I, I took us down a decidedly negative route. So let's talk positive individual performances. Jordan, were there any players who stood out to you in this game uh, in positive ways? I'm guessing Carly Lloyd is going to be mentioned here. Uh, yeah. Well, hmm. Joe had talked about the high press, and mm -hmm. I thought she was there she was key in deciding when they were going to high press. And once she went, she everybody really worked off of her. So not only what she did defensively, and there were four goals in this game for the U.S., so there were some really 
quality goals. But the goal that she had, the third goal right at the end of the the first half, oh my goodness. (laughs) You guys, that was so good. Because I think we talked about it on Kristen Press's goal. When was that? At the beginning of the turn? Oh gosh, now I can't even remember. Maybe this was before. New Zealand would be the answer. Yeah, New Zealand. And it was so quick, right? Touch, step, strike. And Carly Lloyd is doing that exact thing, but at a full sprint, going away from the goal and dragging the ball all the way back across to the far post netting. Her ability to touch it with her right foot, step with her right, and automatically shoot with her left is something that you train over and over and over again for this one moment. And she executed it to perfection. (laughs) I thought it was interesting that other times in this game, in fact, I think in the 42nd minute, the U.S. went direct to Carly Lloyd again. I think that's the Rapino. Maybe the one-time ball that she plays in behind. I can't remember if it's that one or that was earlier. But I, like, I saw them trying to play Carly Lloyd in behind uh, Australia's defense. Sometimes it was Megan Rapinoe. Occasionally it was Kristen Press. But it didn't make much sense to me to try to play yeah. Megan Rapinoe and Carly Lloyd on the break. But in this moment, it does. Because this is where you do want to find Carly Lloyd. Maybe making a run in behind the defense. But when she's only 15 yards from goal, 20 yards from goal when she starts that run... It's just it allows her to do what she does well, which is be ruthless and efficient mm-hmm. in her goal scoring. And that's what she is here. Whereas if you put her 40 yards further downfield, it's just not going to be as clean. It's not going to be as precise. And so it's a credit to her for the finish. I would say it's a credit to Lindsay Horan yeah. for doing the hassling and the high pressing to win that ball and then play that ball through. But, yeah, it's a lovely touch and finish from Carly Lloyd. Well yeah. done to her. Yeah, I loved that. Joe, <laughs> who do you who do you like? Uh, so I'm just over here thinking about how. Carly Lloyd is still so, so good. <laughs> and I'm guessing this is the same thought process that Vlaco's had. But man, like, I know, I know there's talent coming up in this pool and we'll talk about that later. We've got a question about it and it's a, it's a great question and an important conversation. But I, I, I don't know. I think she's the best striker on this team and she showed that in this tournament at least. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen any signs of her slowing down. Any, anyway, I'm just, I'm not saying anything, but I'm kind of saying something. Other, I don't know that a ton of individual performances stood out to me beyond Carly Lloyd, I think is an excellent one to spotlight. Megan Rapino had some really nice counterpressing moments and some really quality, skillful play on that left side, which we've come to expect from her. I think this game, in a way, played to her strengths because she didn't have to track back a ton. Yeah, she did, and the U.S. defended deeper after they extended their lead. But the meaningful moments early on in this game she was on the front foot just as the players around her were on the front foot. And that really is a situation that suits her. Those short sprints as opposed to long run tracking back and then having to defend 1v1 if Crystal Dunn gets pulled out or overloaded. So I, I think she enjoyed some nice moments. I love that Lindsay Horan pass, that that press and pass that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. I also really liked Kristen, some of Kristen Press's movement. And, and none of these are like holistic evaluations of players because I still agree, Taylor, to your initial point, your overarching point on this game. Not perfect. And a lot of stuff wasn't great. It's some of the same issues that have plagued this team throughout the tournament we saw again. But I wanted to highlight just one little moment from Kristen Press, and it is on the build-up to Megan Rapinoe's first goal, that Olympico, that, that goal straight from the corner kick. The U.S. win the ball, and we've already talked about bits from this sequence. Megan Rapinoe's counter-pressing, and Crystal Dunn comes over, and she gets on the ball, and she's driving down that left half space as as the, the seas have parted, and so she's running up that side. And this is a moment throughout the tournament where I feel like 75 to 90% of the time, 
runners fade to the back post and they hit across into the box and we hope and we hit. We hit and hope. I said that backwards. But in this moment, that's not what happens. Kristen Press makes this cutting run. She's on the right side of the box and then she cuts over and arrives at the penalty spot right as Crystal Dunn cuts the ball back. And Kristen Press then can hit it first time with her left foot and she draws a great save from Australia's goalkeeper. And and that sequence doesn't happen if Kristen Press isn't willing to actually put together a creative run in the box. That's something that's been missing in this tournament. It was it was missing in this game, even in stretches. But I loved that moment from Kristen Press to see the space, arrive at the space, and hit the ball on, I believe it's on frame, but either way, to draw a great save and then create a chance for Megan Rapinoe to do that. So if you all will forgive me for using an analogy to a late 90s, early 2000s movie franchise to explain this team, uh, what I found myself thinking of uh, in this game, but in this tournament as a whole, is the Scream franchise. I don't know how old you all were when the first (laughs) one came out or how many times you've seen that or how recently you've seen it. But one thing I always remember from those movies is like... The the mask of the killer is is terrifying and like the killer pops up in random places and is kind of taunting you. And there are vague parallels to be drawn to the U.S. women's national team in terms of they can pop up at any moment. They can be, I guess, lethal in their finishing. They do taunt a little bit Alex Morgan with the pinky up. But then in those movies, they take the mask off like with like maybe 15 minutes to go. And, the, and then it's just a person. And then it's no longer this supernatural being. Mm. And it is way less terrifying at that point. And it's more like, oh, it's a random person with a knife. Like that seems manageable. And I almost feel like this tournament was a, a slight unmasking of the U.S. women's national team, that there were just more teams that weren't as afraid of them didn't back off as much as maybe they're used to it's a thing we've talked about time and again in the in these reviews and so the united states then had to find a new way they had to reboot essentially and i think that's where we are now is that they are in this position where i think because the olympics has pushed back that year vladka would have liked to get this process going sooner but i think he wanted to have the olympics to kind of give these players i'm not again i'm not breaking new ground here by saying this but to recap, I think it was give this team, this group of players, this one last hurrah to to win some ideally gold. Uh, so now I was gonna say silverware, but that didn't make any sense. But yeah, they wanted to win a final gold medal, and then you can go about changing this team and and bringing in new blood. And you can't really do that in that same way at this point. But I do think they are in need of that reboot, of a refresh, and that's where some of our questions go. The first one, I think. I'm going to guess we all agree on, and we weren't even asked by a listener, but I do feel like it's a thing that's been mentioned in various places. Be- before you go to that, Taylor, Yo. can I just say that is a perfect analogy? <laughs> Thank you. Perfect. Also, also, when do you when did you start apologizing in advance for your movie references? <laughs> right? Like that's that's never happened before. Uh, mostly, mostly just because I, I I have a slight suspicion that Joe was like. Very, very young when that movie came out, and knowing Joe's, I haven't seen it. There, haven't seen it. <laughs> there you go. See, I hate scary kind of movies, of... but I know I, I've seen one of them. And, <laughs> um... It's just always the case. It's like, oh, it's this supernatural being who pops up anywhere at any given moment, <laughs> oh. and then suddenly it's like, oh, it's it's just Dave. Cool. And I just, right? Like the last thing I want to say is, I feel like it happened early in the tournament, and I was thinking about that when I was watching today's game. If they played Sweden in the third game of group stage, and that yep. same thing happened. That team would have had confidence from the first two games. And I think that Sweden game, even if, even if Sweden beat them, I think they would have been less rattled throughout yeah. the rest of the tournament. And I think that that is just like the, the crazy unexpected things and the things that are just so out of your control. Like they couldn't decide who they played in the first game. Right. And a lot of times you don't want to play Sweden in that first game because you want to get some, some games underneath your belt. So I just think that that does 
affect the overall thing, the overall unmasking of this team. <laughs> and I, I love that. That is such a good reference point. And I think it, it does a lot of these, a lot of these players, people now look at them. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're good. And yeah, of course we respect the opponents always, but like we can also beat them. And yeah. I think that that has been revealed. Exactly. It's like, I think you see Megan Rapino, and if you're an opponent, you think she's, you know, she's so good at scoring, she can score two Olympicos in two different tournaments. Like, we've got to defend her this way, and we've got to worry about that. But as soon as you recognize, like, ah, she's not really that fleet of foot, she's not going to track back that much, so she's a good attacker who isn't going to do much defensively, so let's focus in on her, if anything. Mm-hmm. Like, I, it, it just changes the entire structure to the way this team, I think, approaches the game, or at least is reacting to it. And Jordan, I think you're absolutely right that if they win, or let's say they beat New Zealand, they draw Australia, or they beat Australia, they go into that final game against Sweden, and they don't have to win... And so if even if they did lose, even if they did lose in that way, it's it's more of a like, ah, oh, we had a flat tire. That's why we lost yep. that race. But we'll get a new tire and we'll be fine for the knockout round. I think it's less derailing than it probably was or has been proven to be when suddenly you have to then question everything. And even when you do have a good performance, you're still seeing it as like, that was good, right? Like that was a, that was an outlier that last game. That's not going to happen again. And right. it yeah, just sticks with you a bit more. Huh. All right. Well, then I, I think. We've talked plenty about the, the the teams such as they have been, such as their performances have been. Let's answer a few questions, but let's start with the kind of big one that, I, as I said, I think we will agree with. Should Vlatko go or should the U.S. stick with him? I'm going to say I'm going <laughs> to I was going to say no, but then it sounded like I was saying no to should the U.S. <laughs> stick with him. I think Vlatko should stay. Yep. And I say this as someone who has been and continues to be very critical of how we set this team up in the tournament. I I think earlier we talked about expectations and we've been talking about that all throughout this tournament and, and the individual quality of this U.S. team with the way that Vlaco set up his team, especially in possession. He, he almost negated the U.S.'s individual 1v1 advantage over any particular opposition. The U.S. has more talent than anybody else at this tournament, anybody else in the world still, but the gap is closing and everyone's been able to see that the gap is closing for years now. And yet, despite the fact that the gap is closing, the U.S.'s tactical setup is almost 100% reliant on individual players to just make their own way and not make their own way in the sense of we're going to have this nice detailed possession setup to then get Tobin Heath 1v1 out wide and she can make her own way. No, it's like we're going to make our own way eight passes before that Tobin Heath 1v1 and the ball is never actually going to get to Tobin Heath. So it's there were systemic issues with how this team was set up, and I, I don't think we should excuse those. I think we should expect to see those improved, and if we don't, that's going to be a real problem. But at the same time, I, I don't think – I certainly don't think it's time for him to go yet. It seems to me that this team did evolve slightly in this tournament, and disrupting the cycle and the relationship – maybe this is the most important part – disrupting the relationship that he appears to have with these players and how much they respect him, I think that – makes it a challenging proposition to let him go at this point in the cycle. That's exactly where I was going to go, Joe. Just the relationship that it seems Vlaco and the players have. They, I feel like now they, and, and it has been talked about, If even if they were in their, their bubble, right, when they were there and not really engaging and, and seeing what people were talking about, they probably understand that people were going to say Vlaco needs to go. I don't think he needs to go because now this team and the way that they support him, I think will have an extra motivational factor in, in their comeback, right? And their, 
trying to prove that they're still the best team in the world. And part of that is going to have to do with, I think, proving that Vlaco is a really good coach because he is a really good coach. But I do still agree with some of the things that Joe said, right? That it didn't go perfect this tournament. And there are things to get better at. Um, unfortunately, they just learned those lessons in one of the two biggest tournaments that they play in and not before. So I think that he stays and that's the end of my rant. <laughs> uh, I, I agree with you both. And I think there are, uh, you, you have covered a lot of bases. I'll just add a few more points. The first one would be that what the women's world cup is two years away. Mm -hmm. So between qualifying starting in, in the relatively near future and then that looming, I think two years isn't enough time for a new coach to come in and basically have the time with the core group, this current core group, to figure out what works and what doesn't, and then experiment from there. If we do want the refresh, the rebuilding process, which was part two of, of Vlatko's mandate, was win the Olympics and then rebuild the team, and he didn't do one, but he can still do the other. But if someone else has to come in, then they have to kind of have some time with the core squad, figure out who fits, figure out who doesn't, should I stick with Carly Lloyd? And they have to kind of answer a lot of questions that I think Vlatko has already gotten answers to. I, I I do think I'm correct in saying that the way the their agreement works, the U.S. Women's National Team, that because they got a medal, they do get some sort of like victory uh, series of games. So there will be more opportunities to see this sort of veteran squad and maybe have some youngsters coming through. But I think the the short time, like turnaround time, means that it makes much more sense to stick with him. But then also, I just think sacking. A manager who takes the best team in the world to a third place finish. Again, it's not like they bombed out and there was dysfunction and infighting, at least not that we know of yet. But it, it just seems like it, it is the recalibrating of expe expectations. And when we do that, this performance is, I think, more understandable. So if we then are OK with sticking with Vlatko, let's talk about where we should go from here. This is where we get to some listener questions. Sean Hardgrove, uh, Joe, who should be considered the core of the team moving forward and what system or style of play maximizes their talents? So two parts here. I'm going to start with the first part. The core of the team, it's the midfield, man. And I know they haven't performed, generally speaking, up to their abilities, specifically thinking about Sam Ewis. And I don't think Lindsey Horan has had the best tournament, but I'm almost completely willing to excuse that given the possession struggles and I'm not really like I don't know Sam Mewis picks up her head and she doesn't have any passing options like I don't I don't really know what these players are supposed to do in certain instances so I'm still saying the core of this team going forward it's Julie Ertz it's Sam Mewis it's Lindsay Horan and it's it's Rose Lavelle and there are other players that are tossed into that group as well Crystal Dunn is 29 um there's there's others. Lynn Williams is 28. I think she would make a good attacking piece, and she is a good attacking piece. Alex Morgan is 32. Abby Dahlkemper is 28. Like there are there are players in this team that are upper 20s, lower 30s that I think will factor in. But for me, Julie Ertz 29, Sam Mewis 28, Lindsey Rand 27, Rose Lavelle 26. Those players should all be at the World Cup two years from now, and they should be the strength of, of this team going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And just when listening to you say that, Joe, I'm just thinking like, wouldn't it be fun if this team played a, it's a system of play too, Sean's question. And I, I'm thinking of a three, four, two, one that could get all of those players and your creative players underneath like a Carly Lloyd at the top of that. And then you put you, Rose Lavelle and Lindsay Horan right underneath Carly Lloyd with the ability to connect and create and Sam Ewis and Julie Ertz as the the base of the midfield, right, of the four right behind them. 
I don't know. I kind of feel like mixing it up and, and changing things, at least being able to add a different wrinkle because now everybody knows, right? They, and they showed that they know the system and the style that the U.S. is going to play. So fake them out a little, even bring in something and play it for a little while and then go back to what you want to play. I think that this team has more ability to do that than we know. And I just, just listening to you talk about the core of this team is the midfield. Well, that gets all those midfielders playing at the same time. It could be something really interesting that they could try to implement. I think that's a really great point, Jordan, because a lot of the questions we were asked related to who should be moved on, and we can talk about that if we want to, but also like, how how do we rebuild this team? Because I don't think, like, like that's where I think this game could have been if Latko went with a bunch of younger players or inexperienced players, and they went with a formation change and a high-pressing system, it sort of was like, oh, okay, they're trying something, and that is the start of the U.S. trying different things and trying different looks and experimenting a little bit. And I don't think that's what they did here, but I do think that's where they go after this tournament. I think they have to try to change up the formation, vary the approach a little bit more, or just go fully committed to high-pressing rapid fire transitions towards goal winning the ball high up the pitch and then not kind of backing off until you have the lead that would be fine too but I think it really does mean that the United States needs to try different things in different moments in different areas of the pitch to see what works and just to give them other variations on how they want to play other styles of play to utilize when they're tied nil nil in the 80th they're down one nil in the 80th and have to find a way through and can't just keep doing the same stuff it's also interesting to me that we focused a lot on the midfield where like joe you're right like lynn williams is 28 i think the rest of that forward line five of the six are over 30 but they're not that old like alex morgan 32 she's still got plenty of time and then the defense seems like there's plenty of youngsters in there too but then i look at the performances from even this game tiana davidson has a few mistakes abby dahlkemper is 28 and she had several of her own throughout this tournament emily sonnet i think is the second youngest defender at the age of 27 and she doesn't play very much in this tournament and i think still has some miscontrols and questionable decisions when she does so i i am i guess what i'm saying is that i think there is obviously a ton of talent in this team still I, it's just when push comes to shove and who are we kind of who's the core that we're building around I'm surprised there aren't more names, and it really does come down to Mewis, Ertz, Haran, and Lavelle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm. I have legitimate concerns about the center backs going forward, especially yeah. after this tournament. Becky Sauerbrunn's 36, and we just mentioned the other two. And Taylor, you're, I, I completely agree with you. We he have not seen strong performances from Tierna Davidson and Abby Dahlkemper in this tournament. That's not to say they won't be involved going forward. I think they will, but. I, I now will be watching them closely, and I, I know Vlako and his staff will be too, to see, okay, are these players up to the level that we need? And if not, can we find other players to come in and do that job better? One more quick break from us, then three more questions, and then a longer break when it comes to the Summer of Soccer, because this is basically the final show of the Summer of Soccer, and then next week we start the Premier League preview sh- per- version of the Summer. So, busy times <laughs> ahead, let's take a break for now. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible 
to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, welcome back. Jordan, we're coming to you for our next question from Clay Crum. What happened with the trajectory of Mal Pugh? Admittedly, I don't keep the closest eye on NWSL stats, etc., so I'm not sure... If that's where the answer lies, it seemed like the team could have used some younger younger legs, excuse me, at Ford with the youngest being 28. So to summarize, what happened to the trajectory of Mallory Pugh? Yeah, good question, Clay. And I think that's um, something that happens sometimes in sports, especially with these younger women. They come into the game at a really young age. Mal Pugh didn't go to college. She came straight to the pros. And um, she was one of the first ones, her and Lindsay Horan, really the first couple of players that did that. And I feel like she did really well. And then she dealt with some injuries and um, whether she started at Washington spirit and NWSL played the last year in uh, with sky blue now Gotham FC and just didn't get her footing underneath her. And we see this all the time in sports, right? Especially I feel like soccer in, in the U S is where a player just doesn't fit in with a team and they get moved to a different team. And it feels like they light up and they are back to who they are. And this year has been that year for Mal Pugh, a, a little bit too little too late for the Olympics, but she just didn't have a, a very great couple, last couple of years and wasn't performing. And a lot of that doing due to some injuries that she had. But this year in Chicago, she's really done a good job, looks more back to her herself. I do still think with Mal Pugh, one of the things that is a part of her game that she's continuing to work on is just being effective in the final third. She can do everything um, really well getting into the final third. She is technically has gotten better on the ball. She knows how to stretch the back line. She can get in behind the back line. It's just the decision-making in those moments, whether to shoot, cross, or pick out a proper cross, I would say, or a proper pass. So um, she's there. I don't think that she's totally out of the picture, and I really do think that this last year in Chicago has helped her not only with who she is um, as a player, but her confidence in saying, okay, I think I can get back to – the the women's national team so that's kind of i would say a sum up of what's going on with mal Pugh. joseph anything to add on mallory Pugh? 
not really. Mm-hmm. I think she's a player. Well, she's been she's a player that's been in camps with this U.S. Women's mm-hmm. National Team, and so she clearly is still being watched and and talked to by the federation and by Vlaco. And I would be shocked if she's not involved more going forward. One thing that Vlaco highlighted in the past as to why she was left off of off of the Olympic qualifying roster is she needs to be more consistent. Is what Vlaco says on a, on a, in the day to day, which is extremely hard. That was his quote. I think now she's getting a chance to be more consistent in Chicago. She started all. She's played in all but one of their games this season and started all but two. So she's getting chances to go out there and perform. And I agree with Jordan. There are still parts of her game that need to evolve and develop. But she'll be a player to watch in the national team picture and in NWSL going forward. Jordan, one uh, one question for you on Mallory Pugh, because I saw this, I, I read a few different like uh, message boards, Reddit threads about Mallory Pugh, and one thing I saw mentioned a couple different times, but I don't have the, the awareness or sort of the experience to say is definitively the case, is essentially that because she has been being so quick, being so agile, has been such a feature of her game in some ways this is the argument is that it like limits development elsewhere that if you can rely on your speed and your agility to get out of sticky situations or if you have a bad first touch but you have the quickness to accelerate to then control that ball it doesn't matter as much but if you have injuries if you lose that form if you lose that fitness you don't have that speed and then suddenly those deficiencies stand out that much more which I think sort of connects to the idea that her consistency, uh, like not being the way Vlatko wants it to be. Do you think there's some merit to that argument that essentially her, her strengths have led to weaknesses that now need to be, uh, I guess, corrected? Yeah. It just honed in. I I think it's just developing as a full player. If you, if you can't rely on your physical abilities what what else are you developing? And I think that that's why you have players like I think Becky Sauerbrunn is a really complete player because she hasn't always she she can't rely on her physical abilities, right? She's not always the fastest. She has to be a better decision maker than anything else. And she's really learned to do that. And so I think on the other side of things with Mal Pugh is she came in fast and fur- furious to this U.S. Women's National Team because she was so different. And I think it took a little while for other teams to adapt to what she was doing, which was just getting in behind, timing her runs well, um, and using her pace to get into good spots. And when you're not expecting that, it can be successful, I think, for Mal Pugh. But then as the teams adapt and know who she is, well, then you have to adapt your game and say, okay, how do I connect when I can't use stretching to get in the back, get behind the back line. And I I feel like we see that a lot in the women's game over a course of different players. I think we see that with Sophia Smith right now, who's a youngster that we'll probably talk about later. Um, A lot of similar qualities, but once you like, you know, that shiny new wears off and people adapt, it's okay. Now can this player who's had to rely on their athleticism adapt to the game as a whole. And that is very difficult, especially at the highest level. And it takes consistency. As Joe said, it takes getting a lot of games back to back to back. And it's one of the benefits of NWSL. And and hopefully that a player like her can continue to hone that in and be an option going forward. So yeah, I do think that that is something that happens. Wow. All right. Great. That That is a lovely answer. Joe, we will come to you for the next uh, hopefully lovely answer. Uh, first, the question from Chris, maybe is the U.S. women's national team suffering from flying in CONCACAF and mostly at home? The She Believes Cup was intended to strengthen the schedule. But again, that takes place on U.S. soil. 
I think there's an element of this that I agree with. I, I want to be careful here because I'm not saying Chris is saying this, but I don't think the U.S. being away from home for this tournament and, and lacking a lot of those away environments, I don't think that's a primary reason for why they, they fell out of this opportunity to, to appear in the gold medal game. But I do think that playing in more of those just different environments would help this team. I went back and looked outside of the Olympics of so this tournament right now that we've just been watching and CONCACAF games, Olympic qualifying, whatever the situation is. Outside of those two situations, the U.S. has played three teams, played three games on a different continent since the World Cup final in 2019. They played a lot of games and only three of them have been outside of the United States or CONCACAF. So they played away to the Netherlands in November of 2020. Then they played away to Sweden and France and Europe in April 2021. That's it's an incredibly small percentage of games in different environments. And I think boosting that number, it's not easy to do that. It takes money. It takes logistical preparation and blah, blah, blah. But I, I think boosting that number would expose players to different experiences. It would get them more comfortable, likely playing in unfamiliar environments. And I, I do think it would be valuable. Yes. Jordan, what about you? I agree with Joe. And I think just that part about She Believes Cup um, is tended to strengthen the schedule. I, I do think it strengthens the schedule. If you look overall with the play, the teams that come to She Believes Cup over the last few years, it's included Germany, France, uh, Japan, uh, England. These are not bad teams. Canada in the last one here um, in 2020. Um, sorry, 2021. And so I do think that these are she believes cup isn't shouldn't just be passed and saying okay there's not strength of schedule there were some issues this year of course with shuffling some teams around but i i don't think that i think that those games any game where you're playing a high level opponent is quality but i like what joe was saying is getting yourself into a different environment having to adapt to uh time change all those things are key in in understanding how you adapt in situations and how your teammates adapt in situations. And I think that that is something that they'll probably evaluate and hope that they can do um, with the thought that there's not going to be another world shutdown. <laughs> but let's know, that, all, that doesn't help. <laughs> no, it does not. Let's hope that that does not happen. Let's instead hope that we can answer our final question from David. Uh, just David. Uh, Joe, who are some young players who were not included on the U.S. Women's National Team Olympic roster that fans can be excited about emerging between now and the Women's World Cup? Okay, so I'm cheating slightly. I know this is exactly the opposite of what Dave asked. Uh -huh. uh, but Katarina Macario is a player who's going to play a big role down the line for the U.S. She absolutely should. She barely played in this tournament. She was on the roster. Uh, I don't, I'm not entirely sure what position she's going to play. I think she's best as a winger, maybe on the left side and cut in onto her strong right foot uh, at just 21 years old. She's playing for Lyon in France. Just an outstanding player. The reason I'm so, I don't know, mixed, I guess, on where she should play is because the U.S. also has like 87 young, talented, right-footed wingers coming up in the pool right now. We've already talked about Mallory Pugh. 23 absolutely fits into that category. Someone to watch. Trinity Rodman, 19 years mm -hmm. old, right-footed winger, plays for the Washington Spirit. She has been one of the best players, period, in NWSL this year as one of the youngest players in the league. She She's phenomenal. Right-footed winger. Ashley Sanchez, not necessarily always playing out wide for the Washington Spirit. Right-footed, 
I think might be best out on the wing. And I mean, the list, I swear, the list just goes on and on and on. And so those are all players to watch. I think the most interesting part for me is going to be, oh, and then Sophia Smith as well. Sorry, Jordan mentioned her name also fits into that category. So my, this is a puzzle for Vlaco at the end of the day. This is a big puzzle for him to try and, and fit all those pieces together. I'm wondering if we might see Katarina Macario as a number eight, if the U.S. continues with this 4-3-3, one of those two number eights, or if we could see her as a nine. She's played in both of those roles in the past. I don't think either one of them is is best for her skill set, but it's going to be some chopping and changing for Vlatko to figure out how how he's going to piece all these players together. You don't need to fit all of them in the lineup at the same time, but it might be worth tinkering a little bit to see if you get a little extra out of this lineup by by toying around with those positions a bit. Yeah. I think what you mentioned earlier, Joe, is the thing that I I wish I had more answers on the back line. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know who's going to be in the back line. One player that I think could be a good center back, she plays currently as a holding midfielder, but Jalen Howell, she is mm. a young player, plays at FSU. She is um, has everything about her uh, to be a good quality disruptor. She reads the game well. Her passing range is all right. I think it's continuing to improve. Uh, she is someone that I am really high on. I think she has all the qualities to be a player, uh, along with all those players that you had just mentioned too. But I wonder, I wonder what this team is going to look like um, because I do think that they need more depth in the back and players – that can just challenge these, you know, Kelly O'Hara and Crystal Dunn for positions, or maybe even push Crystal Dunn higher up the field, right? So there, there's so many things to think about, but I think that that would be one other player that I would add to that mix that you were saying, Joe. Jordan, do you have any thoughts on Alana Cook or Emily Fox? Yeah, I like Alana Cook. I, um, I think Emily Fox is good too. Thank you for saying that. I think she is a good option bringing in as an outside back. Um, with, Emily Fox, I think the good thing for her is she's getting, she's a key player for race in Louisville this year, and she's going to have to lead them in a different way. And I think that's going to allow her to continue to develop. Um, Alana Cook is a, a good center back, and that is a player that I haven't got to see play a ton, right? She just moved to NWSL. She was playing over in France after uh, her time at Stanford. So um, it, it's a player that I'm definitely keeping my eye on to see how she is developing in NWSL and in her pro career because she could come in and provide just a good, even like, guys, I don't know why I'm stuck on this, but I do think this three four two one could be a really cool look for the U.S. And Joe, you mentioned Ashley, Ashley Sanchez. She could play underneath as one of those two high players. Alana Cook be, could be one of those additional um, center backs. She could dribble out of the back. So I don't know. I'm feeling like I might need to book a meeting with Flacco. Is Midge Purse right-footed or left-footed? She's she's right footed. So yeah. we could have if we did that, we could have Midge Purse and Crystal Dunn as our attacking wingbacks. I'd be fine yeah. with that. Right? I think <laughs> I, I like that Midge Purse is another player. She's another player that it was on my list. She's twenty five, so not super young, but within hey, she's the, the recent context hey, within the recent context young, yeah. <laughs> of this team. If Carly Lloyd is still out here, uh Midge Purse is young. Let's put it that all way. Right. It's all relative, guys. <laughs> I think she could be a, a player certainly to watch at right back or higher up the field. I I feel like and maybe this is gonna get people angry. I think 
she might be a better fit at right back, given how the U.S. actually approach games. I know a lot of folks love to see her higher up that wing, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But a wing back would be right in the middle of those two things. Oh. You get the best of both worlds. The, the only issue with, with a three at the back, Jordan, is just – are there enough center backs to do that job? And if Alana Cook can do it, and if maybe Jalen Howell can slide back there and play as a center center back, who maybe steps forward a little bit, mm-hmm. then I can see the pieces coming together. Or, I just have I just have concerns right now. Or Crystal being a new who. <laughs> All right. Let's I thought you were going to go Nuhu. with Julie Ertz as another center back, and then we uh, have more yeah. options in midfield. Yes. Joe, we saw this. Joe, I don't know. I don't know why you're not on board yet. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying, guys. I'm trying. I'm really trying. Uh, and Joe, when you were mentioning our depth that wide, did you mention Mallory Pugh there? Because she would be the other one that I think probably gets yes. tossed in there for some minutes. I think I mentioned right. her just very, very briefly. Uh, then I think like those are all of our listener questions. One thing that we haven't discussed that was one that I think was asked of us several times was about who shouldn't we see anymore? Who should be moved on from this squad? And I think the reason why none of, why at least I'll speak for myself and say, I don't really want to weigh in on that one is because I'm not Vlatko and I wasn't there. So I don't really know what definitively didn't work. I have opinions on who had bad performances. But as an example, I thought Sam Mewis had pretty consistently poor games. I thought this was a bad tournament for her. I would never say Sam Mewis should be done with the national team for a while. Like, you can have a bad tournament, get a rest, come back in, and she can be the best midfielder on that team, no problem. So I think... Like, I don't want to see the exact same 23, the exact same roster, and the next time we get to see this team, I want to see some experimentation. But if Carly Lloyd is back for some of those, you know, uh, congratulations on third place games, or if she does want to try to fight and prove that she belongs, I mean, a brace in this last game shows that she can still be productive. So I don't think anybody has to be moved on. I think it's how Vlatko builds the team going forward and how he brings in new players and how readily he does that. That is the thing that I'll have my eye on. We thought that it was difficult choosing this roster. I feel like what's coming up is going to be way more difficult. I really, really agree. (laughs) Taylor, I I agree with you. And I I. I'm always hesitant to say, oh, Vlaco should go or this player mm-hmm. should never play for the U.S. Women's National Team again because I feel like it comes off very hostile if you don't say it very carefully. Yep. But given what we've just talked about with some of these young players coming up, I think maybe uh, an easier lens for me to look at this through is, you know, where is the most talent? Yeah. And, and that talent needs to play, right? There's no... There's no way for these players to get U.S. Women's National Team experience without them actually playing games, and they can't play games. Even I know I talked about Carly Lloyd, and I'm not saying she should go because she's still really good, but it, it, it's time, right? It probably is time, and it's time for Megan Rapino to move on, not because they're bad players, not because they can't help this team, but because they're not the future of this team. And I think in midfield, there's not a ton of ready-made players coming in and, and those players that's just the central midfielders they're they're still young enough to be a part of this future we talked about the core the same goes maybe for crystal dunn she's a little bit older at left back but she can absolutely play in another world cup i think i think megan rapino and carly lloyd are, are the two best examples but maybe tobin Heath falls into that category a few of those older attacking players are gonna have to go so you can get katarina macario minutes so you can get mallory Pugh and trinity rodman and sophia smith and ashley sanchez those players need to play, and it's going to have to come at someone's expense, even if those players still can contribute. I think those are some names that I think maybe should move along. And maybe Kelly O'Hara, Kelly O'Hara, I, yeah. I, I should know that by now. I, I think it's time. <laughs> I think it's time for her to, if not be phased out entirely, there needs to be more competition yep. there. Whether that's Emily Sonnet, whether that's Midge Purse, whether that's Casey Kruger. 
I don't necessarily – Mitch Purse is probably my my preferred yeah. option there. But there are options there that need to be explored, and we can't explore those options. Flacco can't explore those options if he doesn't phase out some of these older players. Yeah, and the hard thing is, too, unlike other national teams – is the there's only a certain amount of contracts. So if you're under contract, you come into camp. So it kind of takes a little bit of the competition, whereas mm. other teams could just bring in whoever they want. They have to bring in the contracted players and then a few others. And if you come into a certain amount of camps, then you need to get a contract. So there's there's other things that make it difficult. And I think that might be something that they need to continue to address. I know they're doing some stuff with NWSL now where players aren't on um National team contracts, it's, a, that's a lot of the business side of things, but, um, it, it makes it difficult for that competition. And I think that in order to continue to evolve and get and stay up with now these teams that have caught them is you might have to look at that structure and you might have to figure out a way that, um, brings in some more competition. Do we want to see Crystal Dunn moved around at all? Because she is a player who could play in midfield, could play more in the attack, has been the left back. It's not like we have a ton of fullback options, but that is a player who maybe could be uh, popping up in different spots. Would you all like to see her used elsewhere or just stay at left back because consistency is good? I'm just a fan of her at left back a lot. I just I, I think she's a better fullback than she is any other position. And I understand that that changes at club level with players around her. And she is often playing higher up the field. But with the national team, I just, I don't really see her in any other spot. At right back or left back is where I see her. And left back is the biggest need. I don't think she has the game-changing speed or elite, elite level dribbling ability like we see with some of these young attacking players coming up for her to be a first-choice winger for me. And I don't think she necessarily has the passing range and vision to be a, a full-time central midfielder. So I think I think left back is the perfect spot for her, Taylor. At least that's just my view on this. All right. Well, we will see what happens with Crystal Dunn. Uh, Jordan, sorry, did you have thoughts on that one? I was just going to say wing back. That was it. <laughs> there we go. There we go. You already solved it. I forgot. Uh, well, we'll see what happens with her. We'll see what happens with the rest of this team. Obviously, there will be more games, more time to evaluate. We would assume with Vlatko and Danovsky in charge. If he's not, we'll, we'll definitely reconvene to talk about that one. But maybe we can make it a semi-regular feature that the three of us get together some ans- to answer some listener questions about the NWSL or the U.S. Women's National Team or any other topic. But, Jordan, it's been lovely to have you uh, talking the U.S. Women's National Team and everything else with us. Uh, what else have you got coming up if people would like to continue to hear from you in non-US women's national team ways how can they do so one that would be really fun I always love talking to you Taylor and Joe you guys are so good at breaking the game down so thank you for letting me be a part of this um I'm with the Columbus crew so you can watch our crew games if you're in Ohio on Valley Sports or we're on ESPN app um if you're not in Ohio so check those crew games out and I'm at Jordangeli on Instagram and Twitter, so you can follow me there, and sometimes I tweet things. (laughs) Sometimes, indeed. (laughs) Well, Jordan, thank you again for taking the time to talk to me today and every other time in this tournament. Yeah, thank you, guys. This has been so fun, Taylor. Thanks. Uh, And Joe, thanks to you as well, buddy. Uh, And I know you will be back with me on Monday to do a transfer window roundup uh, since the last one we did, and then we're going to do our Premier League previewing. It's going to be a busy week ahead. Joe, how are you feeling? Oh, I'm feeling good. It's summer transfer extravaganza yeah, part buddy. two, baby. Let's do it. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Taylor. Uh, listeners, thank you all for joining us, and we will talk to you all again, as I said, very soon. Bye.